0: Be turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, something I want to see if I can do on this, or maybe not, okay, that's fine, let's, don't foul it up, I'll check that later, take that off, okay. Give me my iPad. I'm going to have to have that. Thanks, huh? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. in verses 34. And hand me my Bible down in my <laughs> I thought I could switch this, and I've got some notes I need to look at, but I'll just look at them. Up here, First Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 34 and 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. I know it was suggested that maybe uh, look at this particular section of Scripture. I know that y'all have been going through this, and so I don't want to open a can of worms, but I also wanted to, if it's something that might be beneficial in the congregation that's on their mind, I always try to accommodate uh, the congregations where I hold meetings if they've got something that they want me to, to speak on. And so... So I thought we would talk about some of this. It's something that I really had never had an entire lesson on. I've just never preached a specific lesson on this. Always covers it in Bible class and we talked about it. And so never really had a, a specific lesson on this. So this will be the first time that i actually done a sermon, not taught on this, but actually done a sermon on this. And probably I should have done a sermon on this a couple, three, four, ten, twenty, thirty years ago. But we're, we're getting, to it, getting to it now, and it's becoming even more of an issue, even in the Lord's Church, in reference to the general topic of a woman's role in the Lord's Church. Even in the Lord's Church, I didn't say denominations, in the Lord's Church, there have been many progressive measures that have been taken, and churches uh, bowing to, I think, is pressure, and so as a result of that, we have seen women taking more and more what, and my idea of what the Bible teaches are roles of leadership. And so this verse has come up. Now I recognize that when you read a verse like this, you may think about it in the terms of something like the old skull's bridle. I don't know if you've studied any in history. In the 16th century, women who were gadabouts or women who were gossips, they would be given this particular bridle to wear. Various ideas have been presented as to sometimes it would have a leash on the back and her husband, if you see, does this have a pointer? There we go. If you see this chain right here, Some have suggested, and there were pictures of that, of a husband leading his wife around the town to let everybody know that she had lost um, her right to speak because she had spoken too much. Well, that's the 16th century. True, but then you see something like this, and you begin to realize that there are varying ideas about the passage in question. Now, of course, he is quoting our passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women shall be silent and be submissive. Read your Bible. I imagine we would disagree upon his application of that passage, but there is this concept that when you read this passage that, aha, that's what you're trying to espouse. And so, I want to talk a little bit about this particular thing, and, and is, is that really what the Apostle Paul is, is stating when he states this to the church in, in Corinth. I want you to notice that from this text that there are some exhortations being given to women. The exhortations are they are to keep silent in the churches. The second thing is that it is improper for them to speak in church. And the third thing is that they are to be subject. Now, I suppose that when you just lay it out like that, someone might look at that and say, Aha! The curse of the three S's for a woman. Silent. Speak not. Submissive or subjection. But let's think for just a moment about these three words. Because these are the three words that are in our text. And so, we need to make sure that we get them defined. The word for silent in this text is the word sagao, and it is the word from Arden Gingrich's lexicon, it is to say nothing, it is to keep silent. It is exactly what we perceive in reference to the idea of silent. Speak not comes from a very general word, one of the first words that you generally use when you study Greek, not that I've studied it that much, but dabble with it. it's one of the first words that you that you learn and that's the word "laleo." and that word just is to use words in order to declare one's mind and to disclose one's thoughts it just is to speak so silent say nothing do not use words to declare your mind so here is the positive here is the negative it's hard to miss what Paul is saying right do not say a word absolute silent Say nothing. And then the third idea that he gives is the idea of subjection. And that comes from uh, the, Greek, the Greek word hupotasso, which is to arrange under, to subordinate in, in the middle idea, the middle voice, to subject oneself or to obey. Now maybe I'm telling you everything that you've already known, and then some of this probably already covered in your classes but those are those, the three words. Now, I don't look at that as the curse of the three S's. Uh, that's not my idea. and I don't think that's the Lord's idea on that. But those are the three words that Paul uses, and that's how those are defined. So we might say that the conclusion then is, from the definition of these words, that a woman is to say nothing in church. That's what the definition said. She is not allowed to speak. And for that to occur, or if that occurs, then she would be insubordinate. Now, don't do the yow yeah, but thing. Just, just acknowledge the fact that, okay, from the definitions of the words, that's the conclusion. But is that a contradictory conclusion? Did Paul contradict what he stated back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5? Flip back over there to chapter 11 and verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Now, is if she's prophesying, is that a contradiction to 1 Corinthians 14? Now, I will say that. I don't have this in the slides. But I will say that there are people who take this position. That Bible scholars take the position, yes, Paul contradicted himself. From chapter 11 to chapter 14, he contradicted himself. But chapter 11 is the greater principle. And so we just ignore the principle found in 1 Corinthians 14 for the greater principle of 1 Corinthians 11. Well, I've got two issues with that. Number one, who determines the greater principle? Who's determining that? Well, man is. The greater problem that I have with that is, really? You're saying that an inspired apostle contradicted himself. If we back that up, what we're saying is the Holy Spirit contradicted himself. I don't believe that. In fact, I believe that the violation of the very text is, in the very text that we're going to read, we're going to find that God is not the author of confusion. Well, that would be confusing to say, okay, well, in this chapter it's okay, but in this chapter it's not okay. What? No, I don't believe that. And so that's for that reason. I didn't even include that in this. Well, what about this? Is it a contradictory conclusion because she is supposed to sing? Notice in Ephesians chapter 5, what is the word that Paul uses to describe her singing or the concept of singing? Ephesians 5.19, it is speaking. And guess what word that is? It's the same word as in 1 Corinthians 14, to speak one's mind. But how is this speaking of the mind taking place? To speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. So, is what Paul says here then a contradiction with 1 Corinthians 11 and with Ephesians chapter 5? Now, this is interesting when you look at to how individuals have explained this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but some, and this has been probably the more common explanation in denominational circles and in theological circles, and at least it's been the more common explanation among liberal theologians in the last 10 or 15 years. And they said, really what has happened in this text is that it is an interpolation. And what basically an interpolation is, yes, I had to look that up too, I knew pretty much what it was, but I looked it up. It's what they were really saying. It really is just an insertion. And so, basically what they've said is that verses 34 and 35, and really they include 36, was just inserted into the text at some point. Someone other than Paul wrote verses 34 and 36, and at some point they put it into the text. Now, what's interesting about it is if you have the new revised standard version, that's not the best version to use, but it's interesting that what they did is they acknowledged the fact that there, in their mind was questionable manuscript uh, evidence. So they put verses 34, 35, and 36 in parentheses as if to acknowledge the fact that maybe they don't really belong here. Now, what has given rise to this idea is that some manuscripts, some of the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, actually have... These verses appearing after verse 40 which they believe supports this idea of you see that proves that it was inserted into the text at a later time by another scribe who wanted to make this point. But here's the problem. All the extant manuscripts have these verses. Every manuscript of the New Testament that we have have these verses in them. I like what uh, David Garland said in his commentary, he said treating first Corinth or treating chapter 14 and 34 through 35, uh, treating this as a later addition to the text may expunge a difficult passage, but it does not erase the fact that no ancient manuscript lacks it, which raises a canonical issue. Identifying 14, 34, and 35 as an interpolation seems driven more by the difficulty of finding a viable solution. Now, that's in the context of the idea among theologians. To the meaning of these verses, than by the weight of the textual evidence. In other words, who's driving the wagon here? Well, it's the idea that, well, we can't find a solution, so let's just toss them out. Let's just say they weren't supposed to be in there anyway. The external evidence is too weak to support this theory, he says. But there have been other explanations. Some have said, no, what Paul really is doing is he's just quoting what the Corinthians were saying and then he sarcastically rebuts that in verse 36. Now, this is an unusually long quote that Paul would be giving and there's no indication that he's quoting. This would make Paul espousing more freedom to those who would restrict it. In reality, Paul's is attempting to do the exact opposite restricting the Corinthians' freedom of expression in their worship. There have been other explanations that have been given. They've said, well, it's just a cultural thing. The women in Achaia, uh, they were more restricted than the women in Macedonia. And so, churches, in verse 34, only refers to the Achaian churches. After stating, as in all the churches of the saints in verse 33, that, that it's just a cultural thing. No, that, that doesn't make any sense. Others will say, well, what he means is uninspired speaking. That is, that this is a prohibition against uninspired speaking by women. And so, in uninspired speaking by men and inspired speaking by women would be acceptable. Well, that that doesn't, work either. And so, that's why I don't spend a lot of time on all of those. All of these are unacceptable explanations. So, how do we get our explanation? How about we consider the context? I know, for some, that's a broad and uh, dangerous idea, but how about we just look at the context? What is found in the context that might help us to figure out, well, what did Paul mean when he made that statement in 1 Corinthians 14? So let's look at our text in the context of chapter 12, 13, and 14. Because in this context, you're dealing with this this idea of spiritual gifts. And as in so much about the Corinthian church, they, they were, as he says, they were carnal, they were babes, and they were struggling to become more spiritually minded, but because of that, they, they had some funny ideas and some strange actions. And they had some funny ideas in reference to spiritual gifts. And so Paul knows he has to deal with this. And so, in the beginning of chapter 12, Paul says, Look, you have a variety of gifts, but there's something that you need to see is that they all come from the same spirit. Now, we know, because you've already gone through that book, we know why Paul says that. Because the Corinthians were rating gifts. If you have the gift of tongue speaking, then you're better. That's the gift to have. So they were rating them. This gift is better than that. Paul said, now wait a minute. You need to look at your view of gifts. and You need to understand, I'm not saying that there aren't a variety of gifts. There are. But you don't need to start rating them as this is better than this because they all come from the same spirit. And so regardless of the gift that's been given to whatever member that has received it, all of those gifts are needed. They're all important. But he says, what I need you to see is that while you're so enamored with the gift and look at me, look at me, look at me, I've got this gift, I need to get up and speak and I need to talk and you need to look at me. I'm greater than you because I've got this gift and you've got that gift. Paul says, look you need to understand that love is the more excellent way. Love needs to be the motivation for your action, not what gift do you have. Love is the more excellent way. Love is described. Love's nature is more abiding. And so Paul says, now, that doesn't mean I'm not saying don't pursue gifts. Don't mistake me for saying, well, you should be concerned about love and forget the gifts. Paul says, no, that's fine. Pursue the gifts. But if you're going to pursue them, then pursue especially prophecy over tongue speaking, so is Paul writing them? No, Paul is saying, look, you need to understand that what we're trying to accomplish in the assembly is edification. We'll talk about more. Just I've got a slide on that in the 11 o'clock hour. But what Paul says then in the end of this chapter, this section, is keeping assemblies which edify and are orderly. Edification was the concern of Paul in this particular text. So, here is where we need to start, isn't it? This is the immediate context, the immediate setting of our verse. And so what we find then is that Paul acknowledges the fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, let me get back over there. You may be there, I'm still in Ephesians. So Paul acknowledges then in verse 26, So, what is the outcome then, brethren? Now that's Paul stating, Okay, so what is our conclusion? Conclusion for what? Well, this is the conclusion to this section. We've got all of these spiritual gifts. We've got love should be the motivating factor. So, when you come together, so what's under consideration? Well, the assembly. When you come together, and when you come together, church, churches, in this context, is just a reference to the assembly. Sometimes, and we even use it that way. We're going to church. What do we mean by that? We're going to the assembly of God's people. Paul uses it this way in the text. So when you assemble, when you're gathered as a church as in all of the assemblies and as all of the local assemblies of all of the churches, it's used in that way. So each one of you have various gifts. Each one of you have been presented with with certain gifts, but here's the driving force of all things, Paul says. Let's make sure we understand at the very beginning. The driving force is let all things be done for edification. Our concern here is when we get together is that we are building one another up. And so... This is what I like to call... This is the first universal principle governing assemblies that we find in this text. That is, when we get together, when we gather together, let all things be done for edification. That's a universal principle governing all assemblies of the Lord's church. Is that what we're doing? Are we edifying one another? So then the question is, okay, so if that's what we're aiming for, we're aiming for edification question then is how do we accomplish this with all of these spiritual gifts this variety of gifts how do we accomplish that and paul says well, we accomplish that by following some rules regarding speaking and so he says in verses 27 and 28 tongue speakers if anyone speaks in a tongue so here's who we're going to address first here are your rules In verses 29 through 33, anyone who is a prophesier has been given the gift of prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak. So here are the rules for the prophets when they speak. So here are the rules for the tongue speakers when they speak, the prophesiers when they speak. And here are the speaking rules for women they are not permitted to speak. So we have rules for speaking for the tongue speakers, rules for speaking for the prophesiers, but no rules for speaking in reference to The women. second way in which we do that is by adhering to certain rules regarding silence. We sometimes stress the fact that the women are to be silent, but did you know that there were rules for silence in reference to tongue speakers and prophesiers and the women? In verses 27 through 28, back to our tongue speaking context, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent. Same word, silent, not say a word. Silence rules for the prophesiers. If a revelation is made to another, then the one that is speaking must keep silent, absolute silence. Stop speaking, stop talking. Silence rules for women. They are to keep silent in the churches. I want to acknowledge something here, and I tried to figure out the best place to put this, but I think before we get any further, I think this is the best place to put this concept, and that is a rule of interpretation. I've got to determine what is being addressed before I can determine how it should be applied. And, and that's where I've really got to know what's in the text, what's happening in the text, what's taking place in the text. Before I can then say, so therefore, now this is how it impacts me. And for me, in this particular text, and I'm giving you my understanding of it, not in chapter 11, but in the 11 o'clock hour, you can disagree with me. That's fine. I have no problem with that. What type of speaking is being addressed here? As I look at the text, it seems as though the kind of speaking that's being addressed is in publicly addressing the assembly in leading the assembly in in some way. Uh, Notice this as you kind of flesh out the rules for the tongue speakers. When you look at the rules for the tongue speakers, he says, okay, here's how they, they need to speak. No more than three may speak, not all at the same time. You've got to take turns. There must be an interpreter. And if there's not an interpreter present, then guess what? There's no tongue speaking in the assembly today because we don't have an interpreter. So all the tongue speakers, whoever those that might be designated to speak, all of them are going to be silent because we don't have an interp- we don't have an interpreter. And notice what he says in reference to that. And he says this not in our immediate text, but if you back up a little bit, where he's talked about and he's dealing with this concept. Um, the, the, the Corinthians' idea about prophesying and the Corinthians' idea about tongue speaking, and, and they were so enamored with tongue speaking, he says, look, you need to understand that even in reference to tongue speaking, you need to understand it's always got to be done in such a way that it edifies. Look in verse 5. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, and, unless he interprets so that, what? The church may receive edifying. Verse 12, also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. You go up just a few verses, what's he been talking about? Trumpets that need to make a distinct sound. Languages that can be understood. He's talking about the idea of tongue speaking. And so he says, look, you guys who have the the gift of tongue speaking recognize that you can be zealous for this, but it has got to abound for the edification of the church. And then finally in verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. You may be praying in a tongue, but the others don't understand it because there's no interpreter, and therefore there's no edification. Paul hits it time and time again. And so, therefore, the ungifted and the unbelievers, if they come into the assembly and there's no one that's there interpreting, they're going to think that you're mad. But then we've got some rules for prophesiers. And it looks much like the rules for tongue speakers. No more than two or three at the most. All must take turns. And then notice that he says that if you're not one that's doing the speaking, then what do you need to be doing? You need to be determining or judging is the word that he uses there. Passing, let the others pass judgment. So, if you're a prophesier, what is it that you are, if you're listening to someone prophesying, what is it that you're making a judgment on? That word actually is a compound word, that word judgment. And it, comes from two words the first part of that the Greek word denotes separation and the second part is to distinguish and to decide and to judge so if someone is, is making a judgment they're making a judgment on the legitimacy of what's being prophesied think about it from chapter 12 and verse 10 this may be the very thing that is this gift You remember in 1 Corinthians 12 and 10, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy. And notice the very next gift after that, to another distinguishing of spirits. Now, why would that be tied to prophecy? Well, it seems consistent because look at the next two gifts. And to various kinds of tongues, and what's right after that? Interpretation of tongues. And so it's not surprising then that, okay, you've got someone that's prophesying, but how do I know that he really did get a message from the Holy Spirit? You know, we never think about the fact of the the blessings that we have, that we live in a time in which we can open the Word of God and point our finger to the Word of God and say, that's what God says, that's what God thinks. Well, they didn't have that. They lived in a time when God was revealing his message. But what if some Yehu got up and said, well, I got a message, and begins to give some message that wasn't given to him by the Holy Spirit. Then the man with the distinguisher of spirit said, "Uh, no, we need to separate what you're saying. Remember, that's what that word judgment is. Separate what you're saying from the truth. It needs to be separated. It needs to be distinguished from because what you're saying is not Coming from the Word of God. Not coming from the Spirit of God. And so that's what the prophesiers would do. They would pass judgment. The discerner of spirit, maybe. The speaker must keep silent if one receives revelation. You know, if, if those not speaking are seated, then isn't the implication is that the speaker is the one standing? He's in a position where he's leading. The rest are setting... Maybe with the rest of the congregation, because the one that's speaking is the one that's standing, which further supports the idea, in my mind at least, you can take issue with me, in my mind that we have someone that's getting up and leading the assembly, publicly addressing the assembly. Now, I think the last part of that rule is for some, probably said, but when the Spirit hits me, I just can't control myself. I just got to get up and speak. And Paul says, no. The spirits of the prophets are subject to who? The prophets. So you can control yourself, even if you receive a revelation. So, I want you to notice what Paul says at the end of this section. What's the reason for giving these rules? He hasn't got to the women yet. What's the reason for giving giving these rules? Why is it that it's got to be one at a time and... And at the most three, and and if there's not an interpreter, then he doesn't need to be talking. And if we don't have someone that's judging, then they don't need to be talking because God is not the author of confusion. Which gets us to our second universal principle, governing assemblies. God wants peaceful, not confusing assemblies. Just like he wants assemblies that are edifying. The application of these rules, Paul says, and there is discussion about where this particular phrase is to be applied, but it seems obvious to me that these rules are applicable in all of the churches. Then he gets to the women. What is the rules that he gives for governing the women? He says, well, there are actually no rules for women addressing the assembly. So when it comes to the matter of standing up while others are seated and addressing the assembly, what are the rules for the women? Well, the tongue speakers can do that one at a time, at the most three. The prophesiers can get up and do that one at a time, at the most three. And the women cannot get up in that capacity and speak. They're not giving any rules for getting up and publicly addressing the assembly because they're not given that right to do that. That is a violation of something we're going to get to. So in that context, and in reference to publicly speaking, they are to keep silent. In reference to that action, they're to keep silent. In reference to that action, they're not permitted that kind of publicly addressing of the assembly, leading the assembly in that way. And that action is improper for her because it's a violation of her subjection what Paul says so why was this speaking prohibited now again I look at this and I see publicly addressing the assembly why was she not allowed to stand up and to lead and to publicly address the assembly Paul says it was a violation of their subjection to man let's look again in first Corinthians 14 and 34 The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. I've got a couple of other references there. And it has to do with this concept of subjection and the reason for subjection. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives some instructions for women. First and not that we're covering it, but verses 9 and 10 regarding her clothing. How, how must she adorn herself? What, what kind of, of clothing must she attire herself with? And then he says in verse 11, "A woman must quietly receive with entire, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, that word quiet isn't our word here. It's not our word, segao. It is a different word, which means with a quiet, humble disposition. We may talk about that later if you desire. Um, she is to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It was not Adam who was. Fell into transgression, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In First Corinthians eleven, Paul talks about again this idea of, of submission, and he, he says that they are to be um, subject. First Corinthians eleven. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something, his head, will prophesy and uh, disgraces his head. So we have this idea. It's a violation. Her speaking was a, a, a violation of her subjection. That's also taught elsewhere. Thus, her speaking in church, was shameful. Therefore, I want you to think about something. Therefore, the praying and the prophesying, whatever that is in 1 Corinthians 11, and we can discuss that if you want or not, the praying and prophesying of 1 Corinthians 11 was done in a way which did not violate her submission. The fact that that a woman praying or prophesying, whatever that entailed, it is not the same thing that's under discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 there is some difference there. Someone will say, well, she just needs to put on a covering, and that's a symbol of our authority. Well, if that's all that that is, and we're talking about two exact parallel situations, then why didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, well, if you want to speak, just put on the covering. Why wasn't that one of the rules? That indicates there must be something different going on in 1 Corinthians 11, at least in my mind. I'd be glad for you to enlighten me. There must be something different in 1 Corinthians 11. The situation of the praying and the prophesying that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 11 is not the same as what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. Or else he would have just said, hey, put on your symbol of authority, and then you can do that. Something different, which I think it is. I think in 1 Corinthians 14, it was a public leading of the assembly. Different than what it was under consideration in 1 Corinthians 11. but Something else... When you think about that, then that makes singing a type of speaking which doesn't violate our subjection, right? I mean, if you've got speaking the same word in Ephesians 5 as is in 1 Corinthians 14, then obviously there must be something in 1 Corinthians 14 qualifying the speaking there that doesn't interfere with the speaking here. And so what you have then, if you don't, then you do have a contradiction. But if you have something that's qualifying that, if that speaking is directed with a certain kind and type of speaking, then there's no contradiction here. Can she sing? Can she speak hymns and spiritual songs? Sure. Because that speaking of Ephesians 5 is not the speaking of 1 Corinthians 14. It's a different type. The other thing I would suggest to you is that we need to understand that to determine whether she has violated the prohibition to speak, one must determine two things. And it looks like I'm going to do this and then we'll have to pick it up in just a minute. If a particular type of speech is allowable without it violating her submission to man, the fact that we find women speaking in the New Testament the fact that we find that kind of speech, and yet we find in 1 Corinthians 14 she's told not to speak, obviously tells us okay, we must be, there must be some differences here. There must be a kind of speaking that is allowable that doesn't violate her submission. Second thing is if the type of assembly will allow her to speak without her being insubordinate, could there be a, an assembly wherein she could express herself or speak? and that that not violate her submission? That's the question that I think Paul has to answer. Well, we're already past 11, so we'll uh, close with that and then pick, pick up with that here in just a moment. If you're here this morning and your life is not what it needs to be, let me suggest a good conclusion to our thoughts so far. Whenever we come to God's Word and we think that we found a contradiction, that ought to tell us, I need to study more. Because that's the issue. That God's Word does not contradict itself. In this text itself, we have found that God is not the author of confusion. All Scripture has been given by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, completely furnished, for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Holy men of God, spake as they were moved, Peter tells us. So God is the author of His Word. And God is not the author of confusion. And so whenever I come to God's Word and I think that I have found a contradiction, then... The second part of that sentence is what I need to look at. Think. When I think. I need to look at that and say, okay, I've got more study. I'm missing something found in God's Word. Because God's word isn't confusing. There may be some hard sections of it. We would acknowledge that. Peter acknowledged that, didn't he? Second Peter chapter 3. Hey, some things that are hard to understand. And who twists them? The unstable. Not those who are willing to study. Not those who are willing to put their their mind and energy and time into studying God's word. But the unstable twists God's word. If you're here this morning, your life is not what it needs to be. If you disagree with something that's found in God's word, your disagreement is with God. And so you need to make sure that since John 12 and 48 says that it is the word of Jesus that will judge me, in the last day, judge you in the last day. I better make sure that I'm interpreting it correctly. And there's no no better way that I could spend my time than finding out what God's trying to tell me in His Word. If you're here this morning, your life is not what it needs to be, and we can up and make it right, let us know. Come forward while together we stand and sing.